Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Darren Burgess, good day. Good day, Doc. How are you going? Good, good. Now, I reckon most Australian music fans would have recognised who that was singing You'll Never Walk Alone. Yes, certainly uh, there wouldn't be a single album that he's released that I haven't bought, so I reckon I've funded a fair bit of his success. And of course, there's Jimmy Barnes, who just recorded that version of You'll Never Walk Alone recently after Liverpool won their first uh, championship for 30 years and he did it as a tribute to his Liverpool friends and in particular to his friend Craig Johnson who was obviously the first Australian to or to be playing in the Premier League on a on a regular basis and uh, he's a mate of, of Jimmy Barnes. Jimmy's a big football fan. I remember bumping into Jimmy Barnes. We just played, the Socceroos played in London. I can't even remember who we played against but uh, I was, I'd, we'd come back to our hotel after the game and I'd done some work in the room and then I was heading to the bar as you do after a uh, after a game and, and Jimmy Barnes was heading off to bed and I thought, gee, I'm doing well here. I've outlasted uh, Jimmy yeah. Barnes. Many people probably, can say that. <laughs> he might have started at midday though. He probably did, probably did. But anyway, uh, another version of, of You'll Never Walk Alone. We're going to answer a few readers uh, or listeners' uh, questions today and uh, we've had a whole bunch of uh of queries from people. So I'm going to fire some uh, some questions at you and, and maybe you can do vice versa. Sure. So one question we got was, uh, who was the best athlete you've ever worked with? Yeah, I guess there's a difference between best athlete and best player. Um, certainly from a best athlete point of view, uh, one of my early uh, athletes that I worked with was Sean Burgoyne, who's still going around. He, he just had this unbelievable ability to produce power quickly. And whatever test we did, whatever, um, whether it was, you know, jump testing or we used to have a test where we'd put um, 40 kilos in a shopping trolley and see how quickly they could push it across the indoor area at Port Adelaide. And he was phenomenal. It looked like he wasn't even trying. Uh, so him, um, on a similar point of view, uh, Fernando Torres, it was just a dream watching him run. Um, he was just... had probably the most efficient running style of anybody I've been lucky enough to work with. Um, so him. And from an overall athlete point of view, I'd have to say someone like Brett Emerton, um, who I think at Blackburn they called him the white Ethiopian um, because <laughs> he would just run and run All and that. run. And mm. uh, so someone like him. Uh, and I remember we, we did his ACL. A lot of AFL people probably wouldn't believe this, but... Between uh, Phil Coles and myself, we, we rehabbed his ACL and uh, he played six months to the day. He played another Premier League game, six months to the day, which is not uncommon in in European soccer to, to, to do ACLs uh, in that in that sort of time frame. But he just had this unbelievable ability to heal and attack his rehab and 
Um, he, he obviously, unsurprisingly, didn't want to do his rehab in the north of England. <laughs> he wanted to come back to Sydney and do it. And, uh, yeah, that, that was, was one of the interesting ones um, because out here it's, it's... 12 months. Yeah, 11, 12 months. And straight away people say, yes, but AFL is different to soccer. Well, Premier League soccer has more XLs and D-cells uh, and more dynamic impact on lower limbs, I would say, Doc, than what AFL has. And, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's extraordinary that in the AFL uh, it's seen as 12 months, whereas in the Premier League it's six months. So Brett Emerton, to answer your question, was mm. outstanding. So um, Yeah, just the interesting one about that ACL issue. I mean, uh, it's not just the Premier League. It's pretty much anywhere else in the world is, is sort of six to eight months, really, whereas we're here. Um, we certainly have a quite a high recurrence rate, you know, about 10% or so of, uh, of ACLs recur in the same knee and about another 10% do their other knee. Um, so it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, I... I'm not sure why we're so conservative in, in Australia. I think it's maybe a bit of self-protection from the uh, from the surgeons and the uh, and the physios sure. uh, being a little bit cautious. They don't want to be made to look bad by someone re-rupturing. But I suspect that's probably going to happen whether it's six or eight months or, or twelve months. There's a lot of research going on into those sort of areas, but um, it's a it's, it is a very interesting difference, if you like, between between the two. But anyway, we've strayed from our, yeah, from our from questions, our questions. Yeah, here. But yeah. interesting about Sean Burgoyne. I mean, the fact that he's still going at, uh, what is he now, 36, 37. 37. Mm. Um, is he still as powerful as he was? No, it's, I remember doing a, a lot of research. Um, we might have spoken about it. Uh, using the statisticians we had at Arsenal on before we signed Aubameyang, and he was the fastest player and possibly still is in Europe. And so what we did was we modelled, and when I say we, they, <laughs> modelled uh, what his decline might be because you're obviously spending £50 million on an asset. And so we could only find people like Jamie Vardy um, to model their decline in speeds, and we're obviously trusting the stadium-based cameras. And so his decline was the same as what anyone else's decline might be in speed, but the difference is they started at such a higher level. Mm. So I would suspect that Sean, who clearly had good genetics because I worked with his brother Peter and he was just an incredible player as well, um, far more skilled and talented than most. Um, uh, so I suspect his decline is the same, but because he started from such a high base, he's still above average. Um, so And that's why he's been able to play and, and not been found out in, in terms of pace, whereas we see so many other players who weren't as quick at the start. Um, when they lose that, they, they lose their ability to compete at that, that sort of high level. Um, so, yeah, so, so certainly, and obviously Aubameyang is, is proof that um, he's still scoring and, and, and keeping, even though he's 30 years old now, maybe even 31. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I suspect Sean's just started from a higher base. Yeah, and obviously still, uh, still playing good football. Yeah, still. So what about the, you, who's the best uh, athlete well, it's, it's a really difficult one, as you say. I mean, I guess uh, for me, Cathy Freeman has always been very special. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be around in her, uh, yes, in her right. triumphs yeah. and, uh, and so on. Um, amazing athlete. And the thing that I most admired about, uh, about her is her ability to cope with pressure uh, because 
I don't think, uh, as you know, I'm a bit of a student of the Olympics and I don't think there's ever been anyone in the history of the Olympic Games under as much pressure as Cathy Freeman was in Sydney. Yep. I mean, uh, you know, she was our only genuine gold medal chance in the biggest sport of the Games. You know, the whole lead-up to the Games was all about Cathy Freeman. It was all about Freeman Night. You know, you could not get mm. a ticket for her love or money for Freeman Night. She there lit the of, flame. Well, exactly. If, uh, anyone, you know, if anyone wasn't aware that she yeah. was the, the, main, uh, the main person, let's get her to light the, uh, light the flame. And um, under amazing pressure... and. I doubt that many other people could have coped, but uh, she had this amazing ability to sort of switch off. And, uh, and people sort of used to think that she was a bit, you know, vague or a bit uh, slow. Or anything, but it, that was just the way she coped with uh, with the pressure. She would just retreat into her little uh, little world and, and let all the crazy crap that was going on outside uh, to cope with it. And, and so uh, what would she... What would she be doing at that time? Like when the when the pressure was on just before that, because you were around in the Sydney yeah, Olympics uh, yeah. as part of the team. So what what would she be doing in that time before the race? And what do you think she'd be doing? Like uh, nowadays, it's cool to kind of meditate and watch a vision of yourself and things like that. Yeah. What, what would she be doing? I think she was just switching off, really. I mean, yep. trying to sort of uh, just relax as much as she could and uh, not get caught up in the whole uh, the whole pressure. Uh, it was fascinating. I'm sure you remember, uh, our younger listeners may not, but uh, when she won that uh, that gold medal in Sydney, which, uh, you know, she ran a, a great race, uh, didn't run her fastest time. Uh, she ran faster in, in Atlanta, but uh, she won and won reasonably comfortably. And, um, you know, nowadays when people win gold medals, you know, like Usain Bolt and so on, they mm. carry on like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. idiots and, yeah. you know, prancing around and followed by a whole pack of cameras. Showing your and, age, Doc. But, uh, I yeah. am, yeah, exactly. And um, But I don't know whether you remember, but when Cathy Freeman f- crossed the line, she sat down on the track mm. and with a, had, her, had her hands, uh, head in her hands. And I remember thinking, I was just just at the fit, watching at the finish line there and I'm thinking, you know, come on, Cathy, you know, come on, come on, you know, come on, get going, get mm. going. And, and it, it felt like she was there for ages. It was probably 30 seconds, I don't know. Mm. But the, then she slowly got up and, and did her lap of honour and, and so on. But... Um, I was the uh, I was the manager of the athletics team in in Sydney, and one of my tasks was to basically look after the athletes when they came off the track, and take them through media and uh, and drug testing and all the different bits and pieces. So when Kathy uh, you know finally finished her lap of honour, she did all the media round, and I took her up to to see Bruce uh, in the in the booth upstairs, mm-hmm. Bruce McAvaney, and uh, do uh, do a famous interview with, with him. And then she went, we went and met her family. They had a special room set aside for her family and so on. And um, and then we went down to drug testing. And, you know, the, the whole country was going crazy. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, that's been voted Australia's greatest ever sporting moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people are hugging and kissing in the stands. And, and you know, there's, there's rapture all around the country. And I remember... I was sitting down there with just the two of us while we were waiting for a drug test and we were chatting about where we were going to go on holidays or something like that. And I remember thinking, this is pretty bizarre. Mm, <laughs> Here am I. Absolutely. You know, the country's going crazy about this yeah. girl and, and we're just talking about uh, about a holiday. But the interesting thing uh, about that, I probably spent three hours with her after the, uh, after the event and um, she must have said to me 20 times, Doc, I'm so relieved, Doc. It's such a yeah, relief. She never once said, "I'm so happy." She never once said, "Oh, that's you know, the answer to my dreams." I've dreamt everything. All she could say was, "I'm so relieved." It's such a relief. Yep. And I'm sure 
sort of since then she's got a lot of joy and, and mm. pleasure out of it. But at the time, all she could feel was a relief that she hadn't let everyone down, mm. country, friends, co- you know, all that and so on. And that that's always sort of stuck with me, that, uh, that you know, relief rather than... I sort of felt a little bit sorry for her in a way that she couldn't enjoy, I mean, the way everyone else was enjoying her victory. Yes. She couldn't actually enjoy it herself. But, I mean, you must have seen similar sort of uh, episodes that there's so much pressure on people that they... They just feel relief when they uh, when they achieve something. Yeah, it's, um, I remember listening to Michael Gervais speak, um, who's a uh, sports psychologist, and he would often say the pressure is your perception of events. The event itself is a running race, which she's done however many thousand times. She just run one lap of an athletics track, which is, but it's the events surrounding that and your perception of it. And I, I reckon it's quite sad that. Um, players in general don't get to celebrate. I mean, and we've been guilty as a as a as a team around the players in the past because they just, all right, let's get in the ice bath, let's do your recovery, let's. Yeah. No, why don't we just enjoy the, you know, enjoy the moment? One of the things we we did with Port Adelaide was we we bought in beers into um, into the change room and uh, which. You know, I can hear people say, well, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't, you know, that's bad for recovery and corkies will bleed and all that sort of stuff. But we made it mandatory that, um, you know, just put your phones away. Let's just enjoy, you know, enjoy the, the, the win um, and uh, and have a chat about the stupid things you did on the ground and that sort of thing. So... You'd be surprised to hear the Australian cricket team did that. Uh, did they? Once yeah, or beers twice. Were, uh, beers were compulsory at the end of you know, a test we, match. And so on. When I took, uh, I think it was Johnny Butcher and Travis Boak into Port Adelaide players into the Australian cricket team in the middle of a test in Adelaide. And uh, they were very impressed with uh, the players having a couple of beers in the middle of the test. Now, I don't think it was plenty, but... No, it was mainly the coaches and the yep. support staff who'd be having a having a, a beer at the end of the day. Not many players would uh, have yep. a beer during the test match, but yep. uh, at the end of a test, uh, especially if you've uh, you've won, yep. um, it was a uh, a lengthy session. Yeah, and uh, then at some stage you'd sing the sing the song, yeah, the famous course. Yeah, uh, yeah. famous Australian uh, test team song that. Uh, would only be sung after a few beers. Yeah, I can later, imagine. Later on in the evening, yeah. you'd uh, wander out in the middle of the ground uh, often. And, uh, I imagine you would have been wanting to go home before that, so <laughs> long before that. But yeah, anyway. yeah, but there was a bit of that. Uh, I'd sort of sneak off and do a little bit of work while uh, yeah. they were on their uh, 10th to 20th uh, beers and so I can on. Imagine. But um, no, it was a great, it's a great tradition. And, and you know, Darren Lehman was always uh, very strong on that, that, you know, you've got to enjoy enjoy uh, your victories mm. and enjoy each other's company. And I think he's right. Uh, you know, you've obviously got to get a balance. But I think in some ways, yeah, we, we do take sport very seriously mm. and we've got to remember why we play sport in the first place and, and enjoy the enjoy the moments because, yeah. uh, you know, there are plenty of crap moments in sport Absolutely. and you've got to enjoy the uh, enjoy the good ones. So, uh, yeah, I yeah. think there was a lot to that philosophy. Uh, speaking of coaches, we had a question about the best coach and and another one saying what makes a good coach. What do, what do you think from your yeah. point of view? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the great coaches, you know, they're, they're so different. Mm. You know, they, I mean... Uh, you know, you look in, uh, in in soccer, you know, obviously someone like Mourinho has been incredibly uh, successful but uh, is a pretty sort of uh, crazy guy, mm. um, you know, and uh, – but, again, they have something in common in that uh, I think they're – 
their players want to play for them. Um, now, what gives them that quality? It's it's some it's a little bit hard to pinpoint. I mean, do you have a thought on on that? I mean, well, the best coaches for me, um, I think there's just been really good individual traits of coaches. So, um, so Ken Hinckley, Port Adelaide coach, he he physically cannot tell a lie. Um, and that was his great strength is every player knew where they were, yep. what they needed to do to get into the team and where they were at in the pecking order. And, you know, we've been involved in teams in the past where players would be dropped and they would have no idea why. Um, and they wouldn't be told because uh, the coach was concentrating on the teams that were, our players that were selected. So, um, whereas someone like, um, uh, let's say Steve Clark had an incredible knowledge of the game and he could design a drill tomorrow that was perfect for how at Liverpool we would be playing Chelsea on the weekend. He would know exactly how Chelsea played and would come up with a drill which would uh, mimic, you know, you're being Drogba, you're being, you know, whoever we, whoever was playing, you're Lampard, you're whoever. So um, he was incredibly detailed. Um, uh, Phil Walsh was similar, had unbelievable knowledge there wouldn't be a player in the game that he wouldn't know every single little detail about and then how to combat it um so i think each coach had um their strengths had their strengths um uh, i think one of the things that makes today a really good coach is their ability to relate and if mm -hmm. if it can't be them then it's somebody in their staff that needs to relate to the players so that's why i think possibly I, I don't know, but speaking to some of the staff that work with Mourinho more recently, is his ability to relate um, has been has waned over the years. Um, you speak to remember speak to Joe Cole at Liverpool, and they just would go through a brick wall for him. Yeah, Mark Schwartz has said the same when Schwartz his had, time in uh, at Chelsea, and yep. talking to him about it. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Um, uh, but these days, the the people that I speak to who are at you know his previous two clubs don't have the same sort of, uh, you know, same respect for him that, that back in the day. So maybe something's changed or maybe generations have changed. Um, well, we, you know, we both worked for a manager who wouldn't talk to players. Yeah. You know, a player yeah. asked to see him and he said, no, no, I don't, uh, yep. I don't see players. Yep. Um, and yet, you know, he'd been successful uh, in the past, maybe in a previous generation. So yep. it, there are different ways of, uh, of doing things, aren't there? I mean, it, it tends to, obviously you've got the technical issues, you know, as you talked about with Steve Clark, you know, and then you've got the, the relationship issues. Yep. It's rare to have both. Probably that's the perfect uh, the perfect coach. Yep. Maybe Jurgen Klopp seems to have the, both those sort of uh, skills. Yeah, without yeah, because he's he's still around. But certainly players that I've spoken to who play uh, under him uh, initially say it's a bit of a love hate relationship because he trains them so hard, mm -hmm. and at different times of the day and at varying times of the day, um, it's hard to get a routine and. Um, you don't know what's coming from one day to the next, and that you know players often like to know. Okay, this week I'm training at three o'clock, two o'clock, whatever. Mm. Um, and he he literally trains. You know, in that that first couple of years that he went to Liverpool, it was not unsurprising to. I think they had something like and speaking to one of their physios, eighteen, nineteen hammies in the first six months. Yeah. Now, not many managers are going to last through that, but he just went. No, if these guys aren't. If they can't cope with the way I want to play, we'll just bring other people in, and that's what he's done. 
um, it's worked out okay for him. So, I want to pick you up on a point you just made there about the timing of training. Because um, in, in the Premier League and, and the same in, in most sports, you know, you either play in the afternoon or the evening, and yet you always train in the morning. And if you try and train in the afternoon, the players hate it, mm. you know, or the evening even. I mean, now surely that does not make any logical sense at all. Um, so there's the balance. Okay, so there's the keep the players happy, mm. and then there's the what is physiologically the best thing. So I'll give you an example, which I, I may have given before. Um, trying to get an African-based player into an ice bath is like pulling teeth. And uh, I've said before that the 20 steps between his locker room and the ice bath are the most stressful 20 <laughs> steps of his life. Now, the whole idea of an ice bath is to recover. So surely eliciting that much stress in somebody. So in my opinion, in that scenario, the uh, benefits, physiological benefits, do not outweigh the impact that that has on the player. So you find something else for those players to do. Um, with training time, if you have a playing group um, where you can trust that if they train at the evening, they'll not um, uh, ruin their day by um, the stress on their families and things like that, then I think training at the time that you play makes complete sense because you can practice the day, if you like. Um, if you've got a team where that's not the case, which is often the case, say, in the, in the Premier League where they just like training in the morning so they spend the afternoon on the golf course or, uh, you know, at home with their family, whatever it might be, then it's maybe not the case. Klopp's gone the complete other way. If they, train at, if they play at 3 o'clock, they train at 3 o'clock. I think in the Premier League, for instance, if you um, are playing at night, um, then it would make sense that on one day leading up to that, on your main training day, you would train at night. And I think that's the same in the AFL and in any sport. That's what you should do. Yeah, there wouldn't be a single Premier League club that does that. I, I think Liverpool do. In the, in, at night? Yeah, okay. yeah, I believe. Certainly, you know, going back two years, that's what they did. They trained at night. Right. Um, so uh, I think a lot of AFL clubs do it on their main training night. Um, uh, if, if you play at night, I certainly know at Port Adelaide we did and the players loved training at Adelaide Oval because it was new um, and training there at night was was great. We'd get a response. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they do it sometimes but not all the time. Um, so I think it, certainly from a circadian rhythm point of view, it makes yes. complete sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, complete sense. So, uh, yeah. But it, the, the whole idea is to keep players happy these days. That's, that's the overriding, you know, and, and you speak to the fortune of speaking to Justin Langer and... Uh, uh, during the sort of COVID period, and he said, "What happiness is? Happiness is winning. So that, that's when you're happy. Um, don't worry about staying positive and staying, you know, happy all the time. Happiness is winning games of football or winning games of cricket." So, have we gone too far? I mean, you know, to, you know we're too accommodating to players. You know, to, do they run the show too much these days? There's a lot of players that I work with that might be listening to this, Doc. So oh, okay. um, yeah, right. I'm going to be a bit careful. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think there's a good balance. Um, but where I think, and this is going back to coaches, so I worked with um, uh, Unai Emery and, uh, and for whatever we think of him as a, as a manager, whether he's good, bad or indifferent. Well, he had a great um, record uh, prior to coming yeah, to Arsenal. Yeah, prior to coming to Arsenal, he was very successful and, and it didn't work out for him in Arsenal. But one of the 
you know, really difficult conversations that I had with Unai was um, there was a player, I might have mentioned it um, in the podcast we did a while back where I spoke about Arsenal. There was a player that was coming back from a calf injury, um, a, a very experienced player, and he was touch and go whether he was going to be picked or not. And I remember, you know, as a medical team and, and performance team, we didn't think he was quite right, didn't think he ticked off everything. And, of course, um, as it was back then, it was my job to go in and have those difficult conversations with the manager, which are never fun, as you know. And so I went in and said, look, I don't think this player is is right to play. And he, he said, Darren, in my experience, if a player says he's right to play, then then he should play. And the player told me, and I said, well, uh, you know, the players are always going to say they're right yeah, to play. They're sure. never going to say that they're not, um, especially a player who wasn't a, necessarily a regular in the team. Um, and he said, Darren, in my experience um, from playing and coaching, um, you know, it, it, I think the player's right to play, so I'm going to play him. And I thought, no, I'm going to stand my ground here because I think this is a really dangerous um, precedent. And I said, um, look, I was never good enough to be a player, um, but in my 22 years of doing this, this is all I've done is performance. That's it. Never a player, but I've been doing this for 22 straight years. I don't think this player's right to play. Um, and he said, Darren, he's playing, and basically looked down at his computer and started watching more vision. And that was the conversation. And, and I walked away there thinking, okay, well, I've done my job. Yep. I've put my point across. It was a difficult conversation. Anyway, player um, played, uh, got through that game, but re-injured the calf in his next game. Um, whether he would have or not, who knows? But my point is, um, uh, that was a really difficult conversation to have with a coach. You didn't know much about There was a language barrier, um, but it was my job to do that. Um, certainly none of the other staff were going to do it. <laughs> they, they were, they'd shown that they weren't prepared to have that difficult conversation. So, um, and it was my job to do it. After I was sacked um, from Arsenal, Unai took me out to dinner in you know, in, uh, uh, in respect for him, he mm. called and said, uh, we yeah. should go out to dinner. So I went out to dinner with him and all the other Spanish coaches, but he sat next to me and he said to me, um, uh, one thing I learned from you, Darren, and I said, okay, there's one thing in, <laughs> in a year, so that's yeah. something. Um, uh, he said, the conversation you might not remember, but the conversation we had about, uh, he said, I didn't concede because I didn't want to concede to you. And I went, okay, well, I'm glad we had the best interest of the player at heart, but maybe it got <laughs> lost in translation a bit. Um, but you made you made sense there because in my experience, it's been playing and coaching, whereas I respect the fact that you stood up to me and you said, um, you know, that, that yours was nothing but performance. So at the time, I thought it was the wrong decision, but at least he had the sort of, you know, I'll say cojones uh, because he was yeah. Spanish. Um uh, to to say to me, I respect the fact that you. So yeah, that was that was a difficult conversation with the coach that ended up, sort of, you know, uh, uh, he ended up understanding my point of view, and I guess I ended up understanding his point of view. It was too late by then because I was out the door, and and he followed me soon after. But um, uh, yeah, there's been what's the most difficult conversation you've had with a with a coach in terms of getting a player ready to play or. Look, I remember going way back into in my very first job in uh, was uh, ironically with Melbourne Football Club back in the in the late wow. uh, 
late 1980s with uh, when John Northey uh, coached the team and, and all of a sudden they became you know competitive and, and did well and uh, and they were the the days of uh, of concussion uh, we didn't take concussion probably as seriously as we did now but we we uh, there was an unwritten rule really that if you were concussed you missed a week of, uh, of football and uh, I remember Gary Lyon getting uh, concussed, it was in his early days, uh, getting concussed one week and uh, came off the ground and, and didn't go back on. And in my experience of concussion, you know, you, you sort of know the next day. They either wake up the next day and they're absolutely fine and, and so on, or they wake up like and feel like they've had 20 beers and, you know, they're not sort of functioning too well. And, um, and Gary Lyon was fine the next day, uh, trained brilliantly, all week, and uh, and the coach said, you know, I want to play him. And uh, as I said, in those days, the, the rule really was that everyone, all the sports doctors and everyone agreed with was that you miss a, if you're concussed, you miss a week. I remember when I was playing, I had to miss a week, and again, I felt absolutely fine. I had mm. to miss a week. That, that, was, that was the rule. And, um, and uh, I said, uh, no, no, you know, even knowing in my own heart of hearts he was probably all right, I said, no, nah, look, you know, you've... We've got this rule. You've got to stick to. It. We've got to stick to it. So I said, no, he's not to play. And uh, I remember John Northey uh, saying to me, and uh, you know, what would uh, what would happen if we uh, if we played him, Doc? <laughs> and then I said, oh, that's fine. That's your decision, John. But you know, you'll need a new doctor next week. And <laughs> I thought, oh, <laughs> I was uh, started uh, you know reading the, uh, the job stance, uh, the yeah, job yeah. answer, <laughs> what, uh, and and he didn't uh, he didn't play him. Um, so I still had a job the following week, uh, but it, what it did do, it did prompt me to uh, to look into concussion more, and then we started uh, working with some neuropsychologists, David Maddox and others, and came up with some objective measures of recovery from concussion, and and, and I guess that incident in a way changed my approach to concussion and made me sort of uh, get involved in some of the concussion research and uh, the newer ideas and so on, but. Uh, yeah, that was a tense, uh, a tense uh, conversation. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's uh, the job is to give the information to the coach, and then let him or her make the decision. That's the job, and we're lucky enough to have Joe Montemuro and and uh, I think I pronounced that correctly. Montemuro. Montemuro. Sorry, <laughs> um, uh, and he was a perfect example of a coach who would listen and and listen to uh, you know his performance staff and and then make the make the decision, but. Um, you know, there's certainly been cases in the past where they haven't, and that's okay. That's... I think as a doctor, there there are sort of two two categories. You know, there is the non-negotiable category where you're concerned about the player's health or mm. uh, so on, with the concussion and things like that. And then there's obviously the the line ball decisions about their calf or their hamstring or, or you know their bruised ribs or whatever that you know you have some flexibility with. But I certainly you know there's a small number of occasions where it's black and white where you yep. you definitely you cannot play you know you've had a punctured lung or you've had this or you've had that or whatever but the as you say the vast majority it's our job to to inform uh, the coach and ultimately the coach has to make that decision because ultimately they have to wear the responsibility although sometimes they will throw you to the uh, to the wolves a little bit i remember once at uh, at liverpool um, you know uh, we didn't play uh, Fernando Torres in in a game, I think, and uh, and Roy Hodgson copped a fair bit of criticism for it, and, uh, and threw me to the yep. <laughs> to the media pack, and uh, blamed me when 
it wasn't my decision at all. But yeah. uh, and he did apologise uh, later, to be honest. But uh, they didn't have the apology in the newspaper. They just had the no, criticism, and, the criticism. And, so on. So and look, you have to cop that occasionally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's the the world of uh, professional sport, isn't it? Yeah, if, and if you take that personally, and you know, then then I think you're not designed to to be in professional no. sport because that's that's what it what it entails. Um, tell me, uh, if you had one piece of advice to give to young up-and-coming sports medicine or sports performance uh, professionals, what would that be? Well, I think get experience. And the only way you get experience is by volunteering. And Doc, I did that Doc to... there is no way that doctors that I know are going to volunteer their, their well, time without getting... A nice little, and that's not just doctors. I shouldn't say that. No, it's a. That's the way. I mean, you did it. You know, when you started your uh, your career, you did a whole lot of stuff for, and didn't expect to get paid for it because it's an investment in your career. Unfortunately, I'm now going to sound really old now, but uh, there seems you know this generation seems to uh, want everything instantaneously. You know, people say to me, "Oh, you know, can you get me a job as the cricket doctor or the AFL doctor or whatever?" and you know, I, I try and explain to them. You know, it took me twenty year, twenty years of, of hard work. You know, and and hours of uh, of standing by uh, by a football ground or an athletics track. Or I mean, we used to have an interclub athletics every Thursday night at Olympic Park. You know, I was there every Thursday night for for years. Mm. You know, and uh, never got paid for it. Um, just did it because I I loved it and I wanted to you know work with athletes and so on. And ultimately, I finished up as the Australian track and field doctor and did two Olympics and, and mm. you know, managed the team and so on. And, and you know, often sort of people uh, often sort of say, oh, I've been really lucky, you know, lucky all the jobs I've got. But in a way, you make your own luck, you know. And I think you have to put the hard yards in. I mean, uh, there's just no way around it. You have to put the uh, the work in. I mean, they, uh, the first break I ever got in sports medicine was I got invited to be the Australian team doctor for the World Student Games. In uh, in Edmonton, Canada, they'd never taken a doctor before for the the World Student Games team, and the reason I got that job is that I had a long involvement with my university footy club in uh, in Melbourne, as a player, as a president, as a doctor, and so on. And the university acknowledged that and said, "Yeah, look, you've you know you've made a great contribution. Uh, you know, what about taking this job on?" Um, and I said, "Oh, you know, that's fantastic. That's great." They said, "Ah, oh, but uh, you have to pay your own way." <laughs> uh, you know the the news was uh, tempered somewhat by by that, and, and we just come back from uh, from overseas. I think we just got married. We had no money. I really couldn't afford to uh, you know the couple of thousand uh, bucks that was required to uh, to go on that trip. But I remember going home and and saying to my uh, long suffering wife, or soon to be long suffering wife, that uh, no, she's I, definitely long suffering. Yeah, she wife, is now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really think I should uh, you know I should do this. She said, Look, we really can't afford. It. I said, Yeah, but. It's such an opportunity, and that opportunity led to the next one, and the next one, and yep. the next one. Uh, you know, I, I think you you don't get there unless you work harder and, and you're okay at what you do. But you need that first that first break, and uh, sometimes you have to pay for it, and mm. uh, or you know do it for nothing, or uh, and so on. And again, I just felt that was an investment in my career. It was three weeks away from work, no pay. Mm. I had to pay a couple of thousand bucks that I didn't have to. Uh, to go away, and uh, but yet it was a single, probably the most important trip that I ever ever did. So yeah. I finished up doing three student games, and that led to a job with the Australian swimming team, and then I got contacts with athletics, and 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 so on. Uh, so 
that uh, that's really important. I think you've got to invest in your career. You can't just sort of expect to come out of medical school or, or sports science or exercise science or physio and just walk into the uh, the best job mm. around. You've got to do your time, if you like. And uh, you did your time, uh, you know, with uh, different, you know, sort of low lower level clubs. Yeah, well, and uh, you've got to work your way up. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and the trouble with sport is, is that uh, most of it is played on weekends and evenings. Yep. Um, which was pretty antisocial and, yep. um, and not great for families. Yep. So uh, I used to take a day off during the week to look after the kids because I was, you know, Tuesday Thursday, oh, know. Tuesday Thursday night, yep. or basically all weekend. I wasn't uh, wasn't around. So you've got to you've got to uh, compensate a it's little gonna, bit. It's going to be an issue, um, certainly for any any uh, sports science fitness people listening in, because post COVID there's not going to be as many jobs, and uh, but. Having said that, you could go and speak to schools. You could sp- go and speak to, uh, in terms of to get experience. Um, uh, I've got a couple of really good friends who used to be in the AFL system and are now working full time in schools. Mm. Um, so, and they're loving it because it gives them uh, their most of their weekends free, and you know they're working school hours and things like that. So. There are certainly some options around, but um, I think every every local football club would love yeah, to have yeah. a, uh, a fitness person, you know, sports science exercise yeah. graduate, or a physio, or mm. even a sports doc, you know. And uh, as far as the doctors go, I say go and volunteer for the club. You make sure they've got a good physio already, and yeah. you can work with the physio. You yeah. learn from the physio. I tell the the young docs when they start with uh, with me at, at the, the amateur football club that I'm involved with, you got to do three things, guys. You've got to look after concussions. You got to look after the uh, the suturing, the stitching, and, mm. and and the serious injuries, and the rest of the time you just follow the physios around because mm. you'll learn sports medicine from them. And uh, and the good ones do that. The ones who think that they're uh, they're too good to uh, to learn anything from physios, I tell them to go off and be orthopedic surgeons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and uh, I mean that's a, one of the first things that I I notice when you bring in um, interns into a club. Uh, um, is there any chance I can get some money for this? Is there any chance I can get some? And uh, you sympathise with them, but they're told at the start, no. And, uh, uh, yeah, you, you can tell the ones that are going to make it and, and treat it as a passion more than just a job, and you kind of have to do that. Like, I genuinely feel like there's been not too many days where I've worked, you know, because the, the, even though I've not had weekends free for 20 years, um, it's something that you love doing, so... Um, yeah. Uh, the weekends are the best bit. That's, yeah, that's when they, yeah, they, yeah. They, they games are. That's yeah. why you do all the work during uh, during the week. Yeah, I think we're very lucky in that we've uh, we've managed to combine our our passion and our and our career. And there are not many people who can do that. You know, I think if you can wake no. up every morning and look forward to going to work, you know, no matter how wet, cold, crappy it might be, you yeah. know, you're very lucky. And I, I think in in sport, uh, if you have that passion for sport, yeah. uh, if you don't, then then you really there's no point. It's just a job, like anything else. Yeah. Uh, and you know you're trying to do probably as little work as you can and get away with it and get paid as much as possible. But really, for us, uh, you know, I mean, it's my it's my wife always sort of says, you know, do they know you do this job for nothing? I said, Shh, yeah. Good, don't yeah, tell yeah. them. Yeah. Don't yeah, tell them exactly. That. Exactly. Um, last one for me, Doc. Uh, What's been the career highlight? Things that were getting all sentimental. We haven't got much time left, so I don't want one of your typical 20-minute stories. But what's been the career highlight? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really difficult one. Um, I think uh, I've always dreamt of the Olympics. Um, I've always been a passionate sort of fan of the Olympics and, and devoured everything I can with the Olympics. And... Uh, 
and marching into the stadium in uh, in Atlanta uh, with the as a member mm. of the Australian team, uh, just something I could never even you know thought might happen yeah. uh, to me once I realised I was <laughs> totally unathletic. Yeah. Um, that was an amazing, uh, amazing feeling just to march into that uh, that stadium, and yeah. uh, I'll never forget that opening ceremony. I uh, don't know whether you remember it, but um, they uh, they had the usual sort of thing: you march in and you finish up in the middle of the, the stadium. You know, uh, all the teams are lined up there, and then of course the big thing is who's going to light the flame. Mm. And uh, they had a succession of you know famous people running the last leg of the relay, and then all of a sudden uh, it became you know it was clearly going to be the last runner uh, or the last person. And the, all the lights that went out in the stadium, and you think, oh, you know, did that happen deliberately, <laughs> or mm-hmm. uh, was that by accident? And then all of a sudden, one spotlight shone on this uh, on this podium way up in the in the stand, and there was Muhammad Ali mm. with his sort of torch alive, with his Parkinsonian tremor, sort of yeah, the torch yeah. shaking. And oh, that's just a moment I will just uh, never forget. It just tingles. Uh, yeah. just, every time I think of it now, it uh, still tingles up my spine. Amazing. What about you? Uh, well, career for me was finishing my PhD because that's something my my yeah. late mum tough gig was yeah. you know was really uh, adamant. So uh, I think I made her proud by doing that. In terms of the sporting, um, uh, I would say running down the touchline like an idiot in the World Cup <laughs> <laughs> when Brett Holman scored the goal against Serbia. I remember seeing you do that, uh, uh, Darren, yes. I ran into the huddle with Richie Garcia <laughs> um, and was part of that celebration. I remember thinking, that's not very professional, Darren. No. But, uh, oh, look, <laughs> and out of character, the, I thought. Uh, I've watched every World Cup yeah. since uh, with my dad um, since I was born, really. Um, and uh, so to be part of a, your national team, to go to a World Cup is something which you know, which I'll never, I'll never forget, and I'll never. Um, and we, we did okay in it, not great, but uh, uh, you know, post German game, we've spoken about that. But um, yeah, that that was probably it for me. Like I've been in FA Cup finals, AFL Grand Finals, those sorts of things. But well, um, yeah, you don't have to, haven't won too many AFL Grand Finals, but no, we won't do no, okay won't there, Darren. Do <laughs> but um, no, the um, the yeah, the World Cup would. Welcome yeah. and a PhD would be the highlight for me. Yeah, so. well, a highlight among Hopefully many. more to come. Highlight among many highlights in an amazing uh, career, Darren. As always, it's been great. And, thanks, uh, Doc. We'll see you next time. No worries. Thanks, Doc. You'll never